How was it? Uh, pain on a scale of one to ten, it seemed to be about uh, two or two and a half. It was there. It definitely was As attention not, grabbing. Not so painful. Yeah, ten being the highest. In terms of grabbing attention, it was there. It's like, oh, yep, that's uncomfortable. Mm. And it has me... So two is on the low end. Yeah, okay. it has me digging into what about pain is so focusing. Mm. That's where my head went. Um, and then interestingly enough, uh, a phone call came in right as it was happening, so I had to grab the phone and put it away, and I think there's something telling there of me doing this in an otherwise busy day. Mm. It was a challenge um, to properly set intention, but then through that process of, of thinking that through, uh, I am seeking a lot of clarity right now in particularly big set of decisions that I'm facing with my mm. company and um, the lack of that clarity is having ripples in other areas of the company mm. and um, that was what came through most was the importance of me getting to clarity there for mm. for everyone else in the company um, mm. and even what we were talking about earlier too with identifying clarity on where to live and where home is and there's a there's a sea of issues around clarity mm right now got it so that was that was helpful to drive that point home beautiful how was your experience it's always good to get kind of punch in the face <laughs> um, honestly for me it was a little bit um, gets a little agitated in the middle like in the middle of the day we're doing this mm -hmm. right? trying to set up I want to make sure that this is valuable for you. So there's a little bit of that, but as soon as Sananga hit it, it's like, boom, be in the moment, mm -hmm. here and now. And it's very grounding for me. Mm -hmm. So it's a good mm -hmm. reminder of why I do this. <clears throat> what do you actually mean when you say grounding? Yeah. Um, being the here and the now. I found that if I'm here and now, like right here, I'm not worried about what I should have done. I'm not worried about what I could do next mm. moment. I'm right here and now. That's interesting because then when I had the intense focus uh, envelope to temporarily operate in, the brain kicked back in for me and went, oh great, this is a time to solve the hardest problems in my life, let's do that. And so that did have me reaching into the future. That works too. Um, but it was, it, was, it was notably a different experience than focusing on the presence of now, mm. for me. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting actually. So <clears throat> for me, there's a famous quote for Viktor Frankl 
between stimulus and response, right. there's a space, mm -hmm. and that space lies our That's freedom. That's one of my favorite books, by the way. Yeah, yeah. lies our freedom and um, growth, mm -hmm. right? So I found that by doing physically intensive things like hape or sanaga, whatever, that lengthen the space, then that will also allow me to, should I choose to be in the, in the moment or do I want to solve a problem with the space that I have? Mm -hmm. Versus hmm. my default would then just be solve problem, solve problem, solve problem. Hmm. Right, by default. Yeah, especially as an engineer, um, the allure of problem solving is really strong mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so definitely dominates our thought process. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited. Are you ready to get started, by the way? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm excited to have Nick here with me. Nick is a entrepreneur. He is a angel investor, mm -hmm. right? And uh, he's someone who loves solving problems, right? This is the core of who he is. He's a problem solver. And uh, Nick and I, we just came back from Burning Man together. And um, there's a few times where I was looking at how he interacted with, with other men, with his son, with his significant other that had me go, hmm, that's something I want a little bit more of. I wonder mm. how he does that. So that's really the impetus of um, even the desire to have this conversation, mm. go a little bit deeper, right, on this. So thanks for being here, I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And this is the question I ask all of my guests, and that is, if, thinking back, what are some of the pivotal moments in your life that made you the person that you are today, made you the man that you are today, made you the father that you are today. Yeah. And so, I would say there's, a, there's at least three that stand out and, and pretty good stories for each. The first, uh, my dad died when I was 10 years old and he had lung cancer, who knew it was coming. Um, but it was still incredibly impactful. I was also a only child, and so at 10 years old, I was, quote, the man of the house right away. And that caused a rapid progression in how I developed. Um, then also, you know, the book Outliers actually speaks to a stat that at the time it was written 12 of the 42 US presidents had a parent die at an early age mm. so well well beyond statistical significance mm. there's something there mm. and the theory put forth in outliers by Malcolm Gladwell was that you experience something like that at such an early age it's quite literally the the worst possible thing that can happen to you because if you die at an early age well I mean I guess that's there uh, but those are removed from the population study. Um, if you're, I guess if you were disfigured or maimed, but uh, other than personal long-term physical harm, the worst thing that can happen to you from a mental perspective is losing a parent. And what that does is it sets a new level in your life for you go through that and you survive it. Well, then everything else should pale in comparison from a difficulty scale. So you are able to go through life with an emboldened self-confidence and this uh, your risk tolerance goes through the roof 
and your your confidence also goes through the roof because you're 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 able to start a path very early on where you're being much more adventurous and much more willing to try difficult tasks and then that self reinforces a confidence loop and so uh, I, I I definitely fell into that category and um, had my own little entrepreneurial businesses when I was 14 and was a world champion level mountain biker at an early age and had my own company dropped out of high school dropped out of high school when I was 17 um, and started my own companies so real early on a big jump start um, the, the next one for me was let me actually do a yeah. follow up so but you kind of skip ahead quite you made it sound like just naturally happen right but typically as human beings we experience a huge setback there's the wall of me and there's the you know did you experience that at all or was it immediately you step into the role of being man of the house and there was a mental switch a very clear zero to one moment was there kind of a progression that the transformation happened well I would say the other thing that happened and it was the darker side of of losing a parent early age my mom also uh, had her own set of challenges that she was going through at that point and so she wasn't necessarily able to show up for me emotionally and that created you know so with her in an emotional coma and me uh, associating emotions with feeling bad I I, I, I shut off uh, a lot of the emotions in my life and that wound up being difficult to untangle later in my life but um, at this time I think it actually fairly narrowly focused me on um, success as as defined by the entrepreneurial version of success um, in a in a very early age there was another shift that happened the, the next big shift um, which really had me start operating in the in the correct mindset but um, that key lesson was uh, you can do anything uh, or 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 and if not there's very little downside in trying who who injected idea into your brain there was no specific person what it was was a A feeling that I couldn't fail. Hmm. But there was no, there was no risk in, in trying something because well, what's the worst that can happen? It's, mm. It can't be as bad as that. So mm. go for it. I see. So the experience of emotional bottom per se. Then there's nothing worse could could be worse than this. Mm -hmm. You can only nothing but up to mm -hmm. go. I see. Yeah. Wow. So with that grand, with that new level set, um, fast forward a, a, a few years, um, I'm 19, 18, 19 years old, and I'm on my second business, uh, or third, depending on how you count, selling and installing window coverings in Arizona. Mm. And I had built one successfully in Colorado, sold that one off, and started another one. It was a part of a franchise. Mm. And... Uh, then I um, 
well, I think it's important to share dark stories sure. too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not proud of of how I got into this situation. I am proud of what it did to me to to pull back out of it. Um, I got addicted to some of the first online video games. Mm. And I use addicted carefully because I, I know that word is usually only reserved for physical addiction. Mm. But in terms of the effect that it had on my life, um, it, it certainly was that capturing, you know, it was, it was heroin-like in terms of how much it captured That's all you me. think about. Uh, 14 well, hours a time, day. Right. Um, and instead of building the business that I needed to to support my family, I, I wound up, uh, well, and I had to secure all kinds of debt personally, so I was um, 18 years old and $76,000 in debt, mm. and um, uh, I remember very stink distinctly that the bottom for me was my wife coming to me, where our, our second child is on its way at this point, and my youngest son, or my oldest son, is about... 12 to eight, 12 to 15 months old and she comes to me with uh, and he she's standing in the doorway while I'm playing video games and tells me that she needs diapers and formula for Connor my son and I had to have this moment where it's like well we don't we don't have any money and so I had to do the the most uh, embarrassing walk up stairs to my upstairs apartment neighbor to borrow $20 to pay for diapers and formula for my oldest son. Mm. And the, the spear that that sent into my heart as a man, mm. uh, it was, you know, who, who are you? What have you become? What's wrong with you? Mm. How come you can't even take care of your, your family? Um, mm. And that was, that was the day that the provision gene kicked in. I think up until that point, I was really still a kid. Mm. Um, but the, the provision gene fully kicked in and then... Um, what do you mean by that provision gene? That my life was no longer about my happiness. Mm. My, life, my purpose in life became to protect and to provide for my family. And uh, my, my desires, my wishes, my happiness was secondary to that goal. Mm. So that's what allowed me to retire from the, my, uh, uh, my video game uh, career and so to start moment, actually providing. So in that moment, you just no more video games? Yeah. Really? Yeah. One decision? Yeah, it was, mm. it was, it was, a, it was a sharp cut off and then I, it was several years probably 10 years before I would touch video games again because it was it, it did it felt like heroin to me it felt mm. like something that wait if I if I open that door back up it's gonna it's gonna cause harm in my life again um, so maybe part of my success was just not being distracted by video games mm. <laughs> uh, uh, then fast forward a couple more years um, I think the well, actually, if you have any follow-up questions on that one, the, the third pivotal moment. I mean, painful. One of my core philosophy these days is that we can definitely learn something without pain. That's a possibility. 
But for me, true transformational moments, true learning, embodied learning, often doesn't come from theoretical understanding, often comes from that deep, I even call it spiritual pain. I don't know how else to describe it. That moment, you know, you'll walk to your upstairs neighbors. Probably felt like the longest walk of your life, right, in that moment. And it was an incredibly impactful memory that motivated me throughout the rest of my life. You know, yeah. the, the, the desire to make sure that that never happened ever again became a new, another new level set that was critical for me to stay away from. Do you feel that avoiding that level of pain is, I don't see how can, how do I ask this question? So on the one hand, I appreciate learning from pain. On the other, certainly I don't want anyone to experience catastrophic pain that's going to break them, break their spirit per se, right? So where is that? What's your, what are your, what's your philosophy around pain, discomfort? Displeasure. Well, then it's been interesting. Uh, one of the, I'm sure we've both had opportunities where friends have come to us and they need help. Particularly financial, it seems like there's a, a circle of people that I, I've learned that if I give them money before they've actually bottomed. And, and, and been through a sufficient level of pain in order to actually choose to change their mind, that I'm just delaying the inevitable. Mm. And, and so I really, I, I've learned to really watch for, has somebody, have they already made the conscious decision to change their behavior and they just need a, a help back up? Or are they still riding that downward path or, or not, and and so the one of the key lessons that that I learned there was, um, I have to learn a series of lessons in this life, and it's up to me how easily I'm going to let the lesson be learned, <laughs> and 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 if I don't, then it, it'll the, the consequences will just continue to get more and more severe until I choose that bottom, and so that incident also had me watch closely for turbulence in in a in the path or in the universe's grander plan you know is this so something's not going right here is this something and then that caused me to much more be much more introspective and reflective and lean in to see what lesson i'm supposed to learn to in mm -hmm. order to to have this pivot so so for me i i have had it be a lesson of pain that was the, the the bottoming and the key defining moment and then you know i i see this playing out with those around me and i see this playing out with my kids is another interesting example where um uh, as much as i want to accelerate them through a lesson or give them a shortcut uh, there's a part of me that recognizes where I was at at their age and I probably wouldn't have been willing or able to listen either without going through that level of pain. I mean, there's a lot of directions we can go about this. <clears throat> so you did mention that if someone comes to you seeking help, you want to make sure that they're already on their way up, mm -hmm. right? Rather than delaying the inevitable. How do you find that discernment? 
because as kind-hearted human beings, we want to lend a helping hand. At the same time, I want to make sure that my help is, as you said, used in a leveraged way, right? Rather than delaying the inevitable. Um, so, and and, and it's, it's a layer um, context because I want to provide masculine care. Masculine care is discipline. It's showing the truth, right? Making sure it, like, discovering the truth by asking questions, asking the hard questions versus from my perspective, feminine care is nurturing and like loving and loving them up, which anyways, hmm. so that's how do you discern where they're at, those that are asking for help? I'm sure I've gotten it wrong, um, but when I, I, well, a key lesson or a key thing that I look for is listen to what people do rather than what they say mm -hmm. and if there's any confusion there if there's any conflict there what they do is actually where they're at and so um, I, I will I will test with a series of actions mm. um, you know I identify okay we'll set up a, a smaller scale test here and see what how they act Mm. Uh, that, that and, and are they backing up what they say when they when they say they want to make a change? Are mm. they actually making the changes that are required in life to go towards that direction or not? And if and if not, then um, I I patiently uh, wait and and continue to support um, in other verbal ways, um, but I won't throw too much action or money behind something until I see that they've made the. Uh, actionable changes. People speak louder with their actions mm -hmm. than with their words. Got it. Um, separate question, also something that you mentioned about how you raise your kids. Part of it, you didn't say this, but what I gather is you let them fail rather, rather than, you know, I'm mixing your analogy a little bit, with the intention of teaching them how to fish rather than giving them the fish, right? How do you how do you find that discernment there? Because there are times where they're going to cry, they're going to experience the pain, emotional, physical, whatever, and blame you <laughs> for not helping them, right? Versus you create an environment, a safe environment for them to learn their lessons on their own such that they can truly learn their lesson. Yeah, so um, this was especially apparent. That contrast was especially apparent in Pleasanton, California, which is a bubble community in Northern California that I choose to raise my kids in when I worked in San Francisco. And it's a great place for kids. It's safe, it's secure, the schools are amazing. But then because of my own growth being so much driven by the difficult circumstances I had in my life, uh, I was able or I, I felt the, the, the need to overcompensate and put them into, I wouldn't say dangerous situations, but I'll say confidence-building situations, much more so than I would say most people in America, and then certainly much more so than a typical Pleasanton parent that was centered around providing the best for their kids and being hyper-protective. So one example was we had a zip line in the backyard 
that went down into the swimming pool. And I was very intentional on my part, not only because it was a lot of fun and a great engineering exercise and um, uh, great set, but it was dangerous. And, you know, I, uh, schools in Germany have uh, the playground full of saws and hammers and nails for kids to build their own um, playground equipment. And in anywhere in America, in the hyper-litigious society we live in, that would be seen as crazy because somebody, quote, might get hurt. And, and my view is, yeah, people can get hurt and it's okay. Um, let's make sure that no one gets permanently hurt, but let's not let this... I, I think safe, the safety card is uh, extremely overplayed in America. And this notion that no one ever should get hurt cuts off... Um, most of the confidence building activities that actually prepare us better for, for life. If we really look back to caveman days, um, uh, the, the, the job of the mother and the father and the, and the grandparents wasn't just to keep you safe. It was to toughen you up for the real world so that you knew how to be excellent and you could handle things as they came up. Interesting corollary, the there's been a few theories kicked around on the evolutionary significance of nightmares. Hmm. And the, the best one that's been, com that's, that's, that's been proposed, that I've heard at least, is that it creates a consequence-free environment for a child to be exposed to trauma, to difficult ah, situations, so that then when they get into a real-life, real-world situation, they don't just freeze because they've never experienced anything like that before. And so I like the fact that um, if my kids are thrown into a difficult situation compared to, say, the average Pleasanton kid, they're going to be able to handle their shit. Yeah. And they're going to be able to roll with it because they, you know, they've, they've been in semi-dangerous situations with me uh, in, an, in an environment where I know that there was no permanent harm that would fall to them. Um, but that, yeah, they would face fear and they, and they would overcome it. You know, I think also overcoming fear is an incredibly val valuable skill that you can give to your kids. And, and we need to toughen up um, the way that we think about raising kids in America. And I would say more narrowly in California in specific, it, it seems um, mm. that the, the, the way that it's taking shape um, is going to certainly take away from the entrepreneurial spirit because it's going to have everybody terrified of risk. Yeah. So what are some of the tactical things? So I want to make sure that people walk away with something that they can take action about. Well, can, can you give some examples of some activities that you're taking your kids on that yeah. builds so, their confidence, that involves risks? So real simple one. Um, and do this basically once they are... Uh, comfortable enough communicating with adults that they, they can handle themselves. Send them into a grocery store and have them buy something. It's real simple, but if you look at, a, say, a, a four to five-year-old kid, that's a challenge. It's also super safe. You mm -hmm. can watch the doors. No one's going to kidnap your kid. You, you, you've, you've got total control of the situation, but you're not there, and they're having to figure out how to find something in the store, how to pay, how to interact with strangers. I mean, that, that, that was um, a, a real good safe, but exposes them to a lot of situations. 
Um, another one is forced conversations with adults in, in one way or another. Um, it's super safe, but um, when ask really difficult questions at the dinner table that challenge them, go mm. around the table with um, forcing them to articulate a particular point of view, um, forcing them to hold court in conversations. Mm. Um, uh, I, I happen to love dangerous, semi-dangerous outdoor adventure sports too. You know, mountain biking, bungee jumping, um, things there where they have to walk up to the edge and address a fear. Uh, in a in an environment where yes, there's not a non-zero chance of death, but it's it's close enough that that we're willing to accept it as parents. Um, and uh, it, it, I would actually say, put differently, any it's just as much about addressing the fears for the parents. So if you find yourself uh, um, afraid, lean into that and actually look at what might happen. Are you the ones holding? them back from growth. Mm. Did you and your spouse uh, have that conversation? <laughs> yes. Or was it a, so know, we a had, one person decision? We definitely had a, well, and, and I'll call it out, we had a beautiful dynamic there in that I think if it was just me, um, we probably would have had one of the kids die. You know? <laughs> 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 I would have pushed it too far. But she tilts towards the hyper-protective Mm. hyper-protective side of things um, and so uh, w w then in an interesting sort of way we both were we would overcompensate for each other you know because she was hyper-protective I would be like let's go do dangerous stuff and then and then she felt the need to bring it bring it back in so we had a we had a particularly healthy balance there and a lot of conversations that resulted because you know when 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 I uh, when the oldest kid would want to do something new that was pushing those boundaries that forced a lot of conversations with my ex-wife and I about how that would unfold mm. I think uh, so I walk up to you doing Burning Man actually really giving you acknowledgement about how your son was you know interacting with other people right and really stood out to me he was a first-class human first and foremost and then a man right he's really growing to the kind of man that he is today and, and I think for a lot of fathers, I'm not a father, but I aspire to have children to be healthy adults, right? Nice, uh, balanced human beings, rather than being um, uh, an unhealthy boy, where it's all about force and control or whatever it may be, or an unhealthy girl that's all about, I don't know, and unhealthy expression of femininity as an example right and, and Connor was super balanced he's you know showing up as a leader <clears throat> so so I just wanted to you know publicly once again acknowledge you for the kind of um, parenting that you did I think for a lot of parents I can't remember um, someone said this it was a comedian it says living through life was a lot like um, you know, peeing on snow in the dark. You kind of make a difference. You probably made a difference, but you have no idea where exactly. I think this case is very apparent mm. to me, especially as an outsider, how good of a, a quote-unquote job you did, right? Thank you for that acknowledgement. I definitely want to spread credit around as well. Shara, my um, ex-wife, did an incredible job raising our kids. Um, I held a, a strong 
masculine line there though that that is coming through the other thing that i made it a point to do was continually surround our kids with good influences that mm. would shape their character in certain ways so uh, when you describe connor the way that you just did i actually am thinking back to oh he got that from this person or for this person you know it was it was definitely a village that that helped raise our kids so it's kind of crazy that if you think about raising kids just with two people because they get their ideas they get their memes from the parents and i have seen um parents who may not necessarily grow up with um, that level of intentionality and then, and then they pass down um, a history of unhealthy ideas or whatever down to their kids and um, to me my new idea once again not a parent so this is totally theoretical but it's it's to raise your children with a village right with a committee with a council of healthy adults so that way they can get their ideas from a variety of people plus uh, they don't necessarily look to the parents uh, for uh, inspiration per se because you know yeah my dad I'm you know who are you but then they may listen to the uncles aunties or whatever so so a few things there there's a lot of people circling more and more around the idea of intentional communities I think particularly the Burning Man crowd who has seen a new way for the way that societies and cultures should take shape and were excited to embrace that. The Nordic countries have been doing this for quite a while. Uh, one of Michael Moore's recent films dives into family units in, I believe it was Norway, where in a horseshoe style there's 20 to 30 um, families all working together. Each each individual family has a small little apartment, effectively, but they're taking advantage of economies of scale with a community in that um, you, you, each little unit, for example, cooks for the entire family or the entire community once a month. Mm. Um, but then think about how much time is saved the other 29 days when you're not thinking about food. And you know, it's like, well, it, it actually looked at through this lens, how many things that we do on an individual family unit, quite frankly, just don't make sense if we did it in a, at a slightly larger scale. Um, and then I think raising kids is another one um, to have the burden of dealing with all of the issues that come up with a singular perspective from one parent or two parents, just, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Uh, it seems far better to spread around. The third factor there that's pretty interesting too is I think that I've developed a theory that, or I've developed an idea that kids are effectively genetically engineered to, to start to hate their parents when they're teenagers. Mm. And, and it's under this notion of the best thing for them to do once they're of child-rearing age, let's call it 14 to 16 years old, is get away and get out of the house so that they can spread their seed elsewhere. Oh, interesting. And so we've culturally adopted that the age for, for somebody to leave is somewhere between 18 and 22, which makes for some very painful years mm. while the, 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 the parents um, also... Uh, are having to shift from treating that 
child as from a child to an adult when they're not actually adults yet and they can see that and so there's all that tension and then the default stance for just about every teenager is everything that mom or dad say is wrong uh, and I need to do the exact opposite yeah. and, 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 and instead we put a pressure cooker and put all of those people in the same house together and, and force that they work it out it's actually kind of crazy that there's not much more troubles raising teenage kids in in today's world. So you mentioned two pivotal moments so far. What was the third one? The the next one that really jumps out, um, I was working with this guy named Leslie Bohm on my third company in Boulder, Colorado in 2000. And we went on a walk and I asked him for some advice because he was about uh, 30 years my senior and I could tell far more advanced uh, in life than I was in terms of growth. And so at this point in my life, I had had the humility also to realize that I needed a lot of help and a shift. I think the other thing that happened with that bottoming that I mentioned earlier was a, a shift from independence to interdependence. It was a realization that I couldn't do it on my own. Stephen Covey talks about the three stages of maturity is dependence when you need your parents for everything, independence when you put a fierce stick in the ground and say, I'm going to do everything myself no matter what the consequences. Even if somebody else might have a better idea, I need to own this and I need to do it myself. I, I think a lot of people are in that phase until they're about 26 or 27. And quite honestly, I, I'm annoyed with people that are still in that phase and I find it really tough tough to mentor them yeah. or to, to work with them because if someone doesn't know what they don't know then it's really hard to teach them anything and so I think one of my gifts was because of that bottoming that I had I entered into the interdependence phase at 18, 19 mm. instead of 27-ish mm. when a lot of other people do. So I was, I was hungry at this point in my life for any external information, anything that would make me better. I had adopted a mentor. This was another guy that was helping me out. And I asked him for a book recommendation. And he told me about Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And so I read that at age 20. Mm. And there's about... there's there's probably a dozen great lessons of life in that book Mm. uh you mentioned one which is the gap between stimulus and response um it's it's up to us there's uh with that i i also went further and said that with the realization that i am completely responsible for all circumstances in my life and it's what shifted me out of what people now in the spiritual community label as victim consciousness. It shifted me from to me consciousness to for me consciousness. And uh, it's both an empowering and a terrifying move because you realize that you're in complete control of all the things in your life, which is great. But then you also have no one else to blame if there's, uh, if there's a problem. And... Um, that shift for me, I think, was of the most pivotal because it put me in control of my life rather than feeling like I was at the act of or at the circumstance of the rest of the world. So you realize that from the book, 
did you have further conversation with that guy to help you elucidate some of this? Because, and I ask this question because there's book understanding and then there's embodied understanding and there's like true mastery, right? So how were you able to, I guess, mm. um, elevate? I'm the... glad you dug deeper there. So in hindsight, I think the first shift that actually happened was instead of carrying around an old story that I was disadvantaged because my dad died, mm. I could realize that there was actually a better lens for me to look through that sort of circumstance, which was, wow, I'm growing up really fast. Um, I also read an article at the time that talked about relative success levels of different birth orders and you know, pointed to oldest children are generally more successful, and then it called out um, only children and, and then very specifically widowed children. And it was the first time I had read the study about how widowed children were destined for more, quote, business success. Because, and, and at the time, the author didn't explain why, it was just a stat. And so I, I had this new uh, excitement after reading the book and reading that article that I was in control of my life and the things that I had previously described as bad were actually just up to me to interpret and that was another key lesson from Man's Search for Meaning. So so I read the book another three times in my life. Uh, each time I get something a little more out of it because I'm in a different phase of life and can appreciate it. Uh, and, and so I don't think it was fair to say that I instantly got uh, how to get out of in, uh, victim of consciousness through one reading of that book, especially based on where I was in my life. But it was the start. It was a it was a pivotal turn that allowed me to go down that path instead. Mm. Beautiful. I remember. And I asked this question too, by the way, because that when I first read that book, I believe it was my early twenties, and I my immediate reaction ah, I could have written this book myself. Like <laughs> does that that hubris. Right, I didn't really actually get the wisdom at all. Mm. I just hear the words, the surface words, and then until I read it ten years later, I was like, "Holy crap! Totally wrong!" Mm. You know, I was like reading and dissecting mm. every sentence. Um, beautiful. Thank you for sharing your life story. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a good time to do a little happy. What do you think? Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. For that. Great. Mm -hmm. So I'll serve you only a little bit, giving that it is purgatory. So if it's too much of it, it will put. So would you like me to serve you? Yes, please. Okay, great. Okay. <coughs> Man, take it like a champ. switch gear a little bit <clears throat> Confucius said this quote I really really love he says self mastery first then your family then the nation then the world hmm. if you want to do better in your nation first start off with self mastery so what are some of your tactical daily disciplines that you do to have you be grounded considerate heart center the person that you are yeah, I would actually say um, 
I've been much more intentional about this in the last two to three years. Mm -hmm. um, and then even more so in the last year, year and a half. Um, I would say the first 37 years of my life, I was, uh, well, actually, I, I have found that our life gets propelled uh, across four different uh, boosters uh, on a platform, heart, mind, body, spirit. And for the first 37 years of my life, I just through sheer brute force, uh, the booster for mind was fully on and going up very fast. And you know, the other three sides of the platform were kind of awkwardly dragging behind. It still worked, it still got me there, but um, a big shift in the last three years to take better attention to uh, heart, spirit, and body. Um, but even in that first 37 years, um, one daily, or not daily, but nearly daily practice that I had that I found worked really well was hypnosis. So there's a site, hypnosisdownloads.com, where you can go and download a 15 to 20 minute MP3 for five to $10, and they have just about every topic imaginable to, for self-improvement. And I found that I would always get sleepy around 3 p.m and um, especially running on small number of hours of sleep throughout the day. I could take a 20, 25 minute nap, fall asleep, wake up feeling refreshed, and then improve some aspect of my life along the way. It was kind of like a self-improvement session and a reset nap all in one. So you'd take a 20 minute nap listening to the recording from hypnosis.com. Hypnosisdownloads.com, yeah. Hypnosis and then, down, downloads. and yeah, I, I did that for, I've done that, I haven't done it a lot in the last year or so, but I would say five days a week for most of the last 15 years, I, I had this practice. And, and I think mm. there was a bunch of restorative benefits from the nap, mm. um, also an intentional, calm, meditation-like break in the day mm. uh, that allowed for a reset. Um, is it new recordings every day, or is it... Kind of the same I had a rotation of probably 200 of them oh, that, wow. that, I've, okay. that, I've, that I've been through, and I've probably now listened to all of them dozens mm. of times each. Mm. Um, mm. Occasionally, I'll still buy new ones. Um, it's also taught me how to fall asleep incredibly quickly mm. um, and efficiently, so I can also sneak in a power nap where, whenever I need to. So I would say um, being a master of my own sleep <laughs> and, and being able to take a nap um, I'm also, I've got a 10 minute version that I can listen to before, especially if I've had the end of a long day, but I know I need to go out for say at a conference, I'll sneak back to my hotel room for 10 minutes and, um, and reboot with a uh, 10 minute power nap. Is there one that's your favorite that you would recommend the listener to check out first? Um, there's a, there's a, a pack of six called the Millionaire Mindset mm. that walks through uncovering self-limiting beliefs, having focus, clarity, motivation, um, and that yeah, it's a, it's a six pack that's okay. particularly good. Thank you. Um, so that, that was kind of really all I did uh, for the first thirty-seven years of my life, and I would say actually I treated my body like it was a rental. Mm. Um, I had a 
dysfunctional, no, no, it was actually very functional, but certainly unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Mm. Alcohol was my way of turning off uh, at the end of the night. And um, I was disciplined and professional and responsible enough to make sure that I always showed up the next day. And if it felt like it was interfering with my life, I would, I would pull it back. But it was certainly my vice and my drug. Um, I've changed my relationship with alcohol radically in the last three years. What is it now? Uh, now I'm a, a 10 drinks a month kind of person. Mm. Um, it's, it was very intentional and it's not part of my daily routine. I was never physically addicted to alcohol, but I was absolutely addicted to the circumstances that alcohol created for me. Um, I, I loved going out with friends and having a good time and, 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 and having my mind be able to turn off to, to fully enjoy and appreciate life. You call that a social lubricant. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, r more recently, uh, boosting up the heart, mind, uh, and, or the heart, body, spirit um, boosters, I have gotten into yoga. Um, I have nearly a daily meditation practice, um, uh, exercising a lot more, taking a lot better care of my body, um, uh, been experimenting with keto. Um, I think I've tried every nootropic known to man at this point. Uh, Anyone you recommend? Uh, my new, and this changes regularly, because I also think that you get different benefits by trying a bunch of different ones, but mm. my new, one of my new favorites, Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica, run by Dave Asprey, has uh, a whole slew of different um, fun things that you can do for your body and your mind, and then they also sell a uh, blended nootropic called Smart Mode that Smart you can mode. take. Um, and um, that's been great with limited downsides. Um, quite a few of the other nootropics, one of their key ingredients is caffeine. Mm. And I've found that um, caffeine for me is undesirable in its effects on my sleep. A lot of people don't actually realize that caffeine has a half-life of 18 hours. And so you, you know, we think, oh, I'm taking it in the morning it's still absolutely affecting you that night when you go to sleep. And so, um, uh, you know, people talk about not being able to remember their dreams or not being able to get good sleep. You should really look at their caffeine habits mm. to, to determine. And so it's hard to find a good nootropic that is effective that doesn't have caffeine. So you don't take any caffeine at all? Um, I will have a matcha green tea every once in a so while minimum, um, but say. very 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 little caffeine intentionally i've also found that i you know caffeine was overclocking me which made my mind feel more mentally clear but it actually made it more difficult to focus on a on a more intense longer term task <clears throat> because i was so quick to bounce to the, the next thing that needed to be done mm. um and so uh, I, i've yeah i've been gradually weaning caffeine out of my life mm. that's so interesting thanks for sharing in my mind the way i use caffeine is i'm kind of thinking my focus as a like searchlight and caffeine allows it to focus through a laser to burn through anything mm. um, so there's a clear uh, 
um, difference with caffeine without caffeine mm-hmm. um, but you're right about the secondary effect that it's so bouncy right it doesn't I can't sustain it for far too long mm-hmm. I also think it's different for different people I know for a lot of people caffeine does wonders for mm-hmm. them it's just my particular yeah. uh, brain chemistry and working habits yeah any other um, discipline yeah so uh, the other big shift that's happened for me in the last year, year and a half, is leading with my heart, mm. acting as a heart-centered technology leader. Mm. Um, you know, if you say love in business, uh, it's still kind of a dirty word. It, it mm. shows weakness or that you um, are muddied by emotion. When uh, I've found quite the opposite, that by showing up with love first, there's an even more expanded view of growth available to me and to everyone around me and mm. my fiance Brigitte has I, I jokingly refer to her as a goddess of love and mm. she's definitely the one that's taught me the importance of, of leading with my heart and showing up first and foremost there mm. uh, there's a really great book that uh, dives into they don't label it that way but I, I believe that it's carrying this forward message. It's called the 15 commitments, the 15 commitments of hearts, I'm sorry, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. Mm. And they walk through not only the victim consciousness that we were talking about earlier and the shifts through four other phases that you can go through as a leader, but also a set of uh, behaviors that they clearly illustrate for you. If you're acting this way, you're below the line or unconscious and if you're acting this way it's here's the right way to show up in that situation instead Mm. and as I read it um, you know being 40 years old and having done 20 years of technology leadership I I knew most of the things that were in the book or had experienced them but what was great about it was reading it allowed for me to provide a set of constructs and framework for me to instill those values in the organization that I'm working with or the group mm. or, and so it's it's a great way to teach the lessons mm. um, and so I highly recommend that book I'm, I'm telling everybody about it now so okay it. so on that note <clears throat> given that you also are a CTO of a this business that you're building do you um, say read this book it's a non-negotiable like a hard line or is it also do you do it as a suggestion or do you do it when they kind of seek your guidance and support opportunistically how do you yeah so share we, wisdom and uh, this is a good question I've, I've thought about making a few books mandatory reading for mm-hmm. for my current company uh, in practice, unless somebody's ready for a lesson, they're probably not going to be willing to take it. So I've created a, a hashtag self-improvement channel on mm. at Slack or on the company's Slack, mm-hmm. and I've started posting different books that I think people should read. And then, really, what happens in practice is is we'll be out in a group setting, and something will come up, and I'll. I'll mention this book enough times that people finally go, oh, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Um, because uh, if, if nothing else, it's going to provide. I, I tell people, like, if you read this, we'll, we'll be able to build the same way together. And mm. so I definitely 
actually circling back to a parenting lesson too I, I love this one um, Hobson's Choice for, Hobson's Choice yeah, for readers that aren't familiar um, the, the story is a, a, a guy that owned a stable where kids could rent ponies to, to ride around his name was Hobson and the problem that he was having was the pretty ponies were getting ridden too much and too skinny uh, and then the ugly ponies were getting fat because they didn't get enough exercise and so uh, instead of letting the kids choose anymore he set up a rotation and where they would go, they would be rotated through the different pens and when the kids were choosing he told them that they could either choose the pony that was next to the, the barn or none at all and I found that choice is incredibly important and that feeling of autonomy is a core motivator for intrinsic motivation people feeling like they're in control and so the, the beauty though that you have as a parent is you can control what the choices are and so um, classic example I give is you, asking the, the child do you want to go to bed now or in 15 minutes and instead of okay it's time to go to bed mm. there they, they you, you've given them two choices both of which you're acceptable with and then they mm. feel empowered um, but you're controlling the box and so mm. I've, I found um, that to be incredibly helpful when I don't I don't use that trick on people that I, that I work with me but right, right. do you uh, want this book uh, now or in 15 <laughs> minutes uh, but but definitely with kids it works great but how does it translate because this is one of those questions that you know all company leaders think about because there are certain conscious shift that you want to see in your people but you know human beings are human beings and they don't like to be forced or being told what to do and then when you're they're being told what to do, they naturally was resist, right? Exactly. Sim it's very similar to the analogy you gave about parenting. Not exactly the same, but it's very similar. So then how do you create a, a good enrollment conversation about what are some of these shifts with knowing that you also control you know, ultimately, their their paycheck, their you know, their environment, the kind of people they get to work with, and a lot of different factors, right? So, yeah, I know it's cliche, but it really just does come down to this for me: is lead by example. Okay. That uh, I show up and continually demonstrate above the line de de decision making and behavior, and set that example for the company, and then occasionally. I think it's also important for a community, and this really does need to be done at a community level rather than an individual punishment level, for the community to take a stance for behaviors that are unacceptable to the community. Mm. And if they exist, then it's like, hey, that's, you know, we're all standing together and saying that's not how we as a community role and so if you want to choose to be a part of this community, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to have to change your behaviors. So, so it's you, another way to, to, to give so, the choice. So in your company, you guys don't have like a non-negotiable, like this is what we do and this is what we don't do. Like a, a place to begin that kind of discussion. We yeah, so we definitely, um, what my favorite way to do that, that, and I've done this at three companies now, mm -hmm. we create a construct for 
uh, a tag cloud based exercise where we sit down early in the company's life as it was a way to define culture first set of tag the first tag cloud is what, what, what I call who we are and this is a set of character attributes that define what it means to be in that company and this would determine what kinds of things we're interviewing for for example mm-hmm. uh, uh, my number one that's always on the list is is integrity mm-hmm. because I believe trust is the foundation of all relationships and <clears throat> if I can't trust and count on those that I'm working with then it's really hard to build on on, on anything less so then the second tag cloud is how we roll and these are the set of behaviors that we enable in, within the company and then okay so you do have black and white the behaviors we embody and well, how we roll yeah who we are and how we roll are defined as um, a, a set of keywords mm. and then we inculcate that into the culture by making sure that we are making daily decisions that align with those mm. and 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 we create a psychologically safe environment for everybody to call out if there's departures from those those agreed upon principles so are there consequences uh, if I don't adhere to how we roll uh, you know so a real key one where we had to have this conversation um, I asked the evocative question if we're saying that integrity is is a is a principal value do we fire somebody for lying and it spawned a really interesting conversation that wound up effectively distilling to how draconian we were going to be about enforcing these and you know i i i intentionally held a no we we would absolutely fire somebody if they were caught in a lie and that would and it and it, it would be an irrecoverable offense and then some of the more compassionate people in the room stood up and said well wait we'd have to look at the circumstance or maybe they were in a really tough spot or you know how what let's let's understand the details before just having a blanket rule and we ultimately settled on on that um having that conversation also then mandated that integrity was a real important part of the interview process uh, because we we didn't want to find ourselves in that position Um, and then when somebody hears coming in the door um, that integrity is that important they're gonna think twice Uh, and to date um, I've I've had to fire somebody for an integrity issue since um, but it actually became an interesting rallying point around those principles and people were happy to see that we were willing to stand behind those principles Mm. so so it's it's been markedly remarkably successful in helping to define the culture thank you for that tactically speaking how do you filter for integrity because I mean it's one of those values that I have yet to meet someone who said integrity is not important. If you ask them logically, they know the answer that kind of, if you're asking a question, you're looking for an answer, right? So how do you authentically kind of dig beneath the line of a logical response? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's 
funny, you know, after probably interviewed 500 candidates now, so it's it's just natural and I can tell. Sure. Um, but then I'm digging into it. I, it, it you can, there is a, f a filtering mechanism in the workplace where if someone is continually not in integrity, then they won't excel. They won't, and unless you're in sales, I don't know. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, if someone comes in well referred or if they come uh, with, with a good reputation, you can kind of check that box. That they, I see. they must have already learned that or they wouldn't be where they are. I see. Um, but if I have to dig in, um, I, I, one of the questions I've asked for integrity is, when is the last time you found yourself in a situation where you were, your integrity was compromised? Mm. And, and then ask them to explain you know, how they dealt with it. And, um, uh, or or I, maybe a different way that I'd put it now is when you felt your, like your integrity was challenged. And so I'm really looking for a, a time when they, they took a stance for it. I also unpack integrity within the context of work in that it's, it's about us being able to rely on each other. And so I need to know that if I give something to you to handle, that it will be taken care of. And, and not that if I have to follow up because you forgot because you don't have your own professional shit together enough that you've got a system for, for keeping track of all the things that are going to come at you. That's not my job. My, your, 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 it's your job to make sure that you always do what you say you're going to do within the company. Mm -hmm. And that comes from uh, the, the, the other piece of what's important there is expectation management. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not able to do what you say you're going to do, then... Um, well, you shouldn't have committed to it in the first place uh, or you need to reset expectations later and that's also fine it's 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 not a super hard line that you always have to do but if not um, it shouldn't ever just get dropped you should come back and reset the expectation with me so um, and another lead by example way if I ever miss a meeting or or uh, miss a commitment I make it a point to own up to it and, and not just let it be like, oh, that was weird, something dropped off, and then that somehow is, is a festering uh, symbol of acceptable disintegrity. I show up and say, you know, that wasn't okay with me, and I'm sorry, and, and now we're, we're going to make it right. Or People know the standard for integrity by the bosses being able to own up to situations where there wasn't 100% integrity. Thank you. That's a switched conversation a little bit. You are running a company called Good Money, right? So um, one thing that I'm curious about is money is one of those things that's actually, let me backtrack, context of my question. Integrity is whether we say what we're going to do by the time we say we're going to do it by, right? And um, and resource allocation is a huge aspect of life, whether it be time, whether it be money, whether it be the, what energy we put in. Um, for someone that's listening, who aspire to be an entrepreneur, who aspire to be an investor, right? Money is a huge aspect of life that we need to be better at. So knowing that, um, what disciplines around um, ways to be better at managing money 
that perhaps I assume I'm a, I'm asking I'm curious you know if you have any particular uh, suggestion or practices and be a better entrepreneur be better um, you know money resource management yeah there's an interesting conflict right now in two schools of thought um, and I've lived both and I personally have been much more successful in the latter scarcity versus abundance um, the, there's one view which would be well proselytized by the millionaire next door which is this idea that the way that the, the way that you actually become a self-made millionaire is through spending less and being miserly and being frugal um, and I definitely think that there's value in those lessons uh, but the broader shift that I've made more recently, and I'll fully acknowledge and admit my bias here in that it's much easier to speak about abundance once you have it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but now coming out the other side, living a, a, a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity has uh, increased my wealth even more. Mm. Uh, and... It's a, it's kind of a cruel trick that I think the the universe plays on us, and that um, we don't really understand the full power of abundance until we have it. Um, to know, so having what you have now, knowing what you know now, <clears throat> speaking to, I'm assuming, right? That's let's say you speak to your son, you speak, you speak to your daughter, or speak to an aspiring entrepreneur who may not necessarily have tools that you have. What tactical advice, mindset, practices can you advise them on in such a way that can perhaps accelerate the process? Yes, and, but I do want to add actually another qualifier, yeah, which please. is re recognizing the difficulty of the current economic climate, which I think it, it, it is set up to reward the people that already have money mm. and so there's a tremendous amount of inertia required to break through from uh, the, the, the mobility in America is lower than it ever has been and um, it's this is, it's a tough problem so I don't want to sugarcoat just how easy it is and be that guy that says oh yeah just Put your mind to it, and you can make it happen. It, I know. Process, it's, sure. I know it's a lot more difficult than that. Yeah. Because um, yeah. uh, I've done it, um, but I, I will say, uh, and it, it really actually comes back to the victim consciousness that we were talking about earlier. Um, it's so easy for us to externalize and say, well. I can't get this job because I don't have the college degree or I can't get this job because I don't have experience or I can't do. Um, there are always creative ways to knock down walls and challenges and, and hurdles and problems. Um, and so I would say lean into the can't. And, and when I really look at a lot of the conversations that I'm having with people that I'm mentoring or my kids, this is, this is a, a resounding theme, is knocking down their can't walls. 
where they've they've put up something that has uh, that is hindering their own success through uh, ultimately it's a lack of creativity and or a lack of ambition um, uh, but putting those two ingredients together I think that all of the can'ts can be addressed so what tactical things though can they take on though <clears throat> so for example um, my 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 daughter Anna uh, uh, went to Burning Man with us this year and she's come home uh, she, at first she was she was just super excited about showing up to the playa next year with her gift because she really thought very deeply about what she would want to do next um, uh, and uh, she loves cooking she loves to, so she got this idea of next year she's going to bring a food truck out to the playa and that will be her contribution and it'll be an art car and she'll actually drive it out and imagine stumbling around a deep playa next year and you start to smell chocolate chip cookies uh, that's that's what she wants to show up and provide and then the days after the burn that turned into this whole other idea about her owning her own food truck and I happen to know the guy that created the Kogi food truck phenomenon mm -hmm. in San Francisco or in LA mm -hmm. and so we, we can have her and I said so well actually the best thing for you to do to get started is to work at a food truck for a, a few months and understand what it's like and mm -hmm. so I've now took something where she was ready to just fall into a crap job somewhere uh, to start to make money um, or decide whether or not she was going to go on a gap year. Now she's super excited and enthused about working at a food truck and it's not because um, she's really going to enjoy that work because it's a stepping stone for her being able to build to something much bigger. Um, I have to say, I also recognize my kids have the benefit of, uh, they all have what I, I put together for them, it's, a, it's called a future fund, where it's a small amount of money, but they can invest it however they want to in a way that's going to improve their net worth, or it's going to make them better. So whether it's going to college, starting a business, or um, uh, putting a down payment on a house, they're willing, they're, they're able to do that. Um, that's a gift that they have that's a significant advantage that, that, that a lot of people, that most people don't have. Um, um, so, but, but I, I will say um, I did it, you know, starting with nothing and raising four kids um, and now I'm a self-made millionaire through and I would say I didn't do it through uh, saving or scarcity. I did it through figuring out how to uh, lever up my abilities beyond what I was accomplishing just myself. So it's so part I, of a larger team or a larger company or a, a bunch of other smart people working together. Yeah. I asked this question because I realized that uh, more and more, and yes, such a fundamental um, financial skills to have is um, resource allocation. Like, mm -hmm. look at your budget, make sure your cash flow is, is, mm -hmm. is, is managed properly. Um, 
and then, and then where do you allocate your resources uh, such that you can have the kind of life that you want, whatever it be. It may, it may be, maybe um, investing into a food truck or whatever, right? Whatever it is that you want to do. And I think the more conversation we can have about this, the more we can not just address the mindset, because there are a lot of mindset type teachings but what I found was like the gap, the missing is, okay, so I get it, mindset, right? But what are some of the tactical things? Can I go out and try and be better entrepreneurs? And, and, and another thing that would distinguish from this podcast you know, is, is that if you want to be better at anything, just really go out and do it. If you want to be a better fighter, way to do it is to fight. <laughs> want to be an entrepreneur, the way to do it is by starting businesses, by making offers. Um, you want to be better chefs, start cooking and, you know, trial by error kind of a thing. Broader conversation is, um, is in, the, in the future of technology and money. From your perspective, from your viewpoint, what are some of the things that with what's something that's up and coming that men could do to be better men uh, in modern times? I know that this may sound like a disparate question, but I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on that. Sure, so I said earlier that my purpose in life was to protect and provide for my family. I've also recognized and developed my own view of, of the purpose of men more broadly, and that's to protect and to provide for women and families that, that, that that's why we're here and so when now when I look at the relationships that I have with other women in my life and not not just my fiance but our our friends um, I, I I I see that it's my job to show up and and protect and provide for them and all forms. Um, sometimes that's support emotionally. Sometimes it's financial support. Uh, but the, the, the when I've I, if we saw a collective shift with men towards that view, I think that we'd be in much better shape than the scarcity mindset that that allows um, us to claw back to resources that only we feel that we need to to spend or to 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 expend but also get men out of the conquer notion that they've carried forward uh, with a lot of, I, well, let's call it out, conquering competitive behavior has its evolutionary significance. And when I look back to two tribes that were side by side, but one was very competitive and conquer oriented, chances are the other one's dead. So, you know, we're a result of a lot of those behaviors being passed down through through genes. And that has served well for, for conquering the planet. But now the, the planet's conquered. Um, and um, Elon Bezos and others have decided that there's new territory to conquer. But what we really should be doing is figuring out different ways to collaborate instead of compete um, and I think this is where men should be looking to women to understand feminine values and how they could be 
better used with our current society. I, I think broadly we need a lot more feminine energy ruling the world. Um, if we had, and, and I didn't say women very intentionally, I think we all have masculine and feminine energy within us uh, at, at different levels. And I've seen as part of the heart-centered leadership that I've gone through, uh, my life improved significantly and I believe that all men, if they learn to better balance and understand masculine and feminine values within themselves and those around them, we'd, we'd, we'd be in a lot better space than we are today. Instead of the, the, the old view of holding hyper-masculine values and then uh, somehow uh, introducing feminine values into their psyche is a sign of weakness. That's the world that we uh, have been living in and it just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, some of the other shifts in values, I think shifting from individualism to collectivism, from scarcity to abundance, from independence to interdependence, um, uh, from competition to collaboration. We need much more of that. And I'm putting my money where my mouth is here. I've run a foundation with my fiance called the Upward Spirals Foundation that is about getting, and it's inspired by um, our love story where I pour love into her in a way that she reciprocates and appreciates. So then I get more love back and it creates an upward spiral in, in our dynamic and the way that it works. And I think that's actually a beautiful model to think about how we create a thriving future for humanity is to think of it as up, an upward spiral in all aspects. And that also allows you to watch for downward spirals. So we find people, not necessarily women, but a few of them have been men, uh, where they're bringing feminine values in the work that they do. But they may not have necessarily tapped into the American capitalism way of extracting value from society. Uh, and we find ways to support them with their gifts and bring um, that shift. Uh, and I think that's an important part of rewriting the story. And the, the, the story that we've been telling is that this world is headed towards a path of destruction and towards a technology uh, you know, a Terminator-style outcome where there's a cold dystopian future, the machines overtake us, and the, the planet is ravaged. You, you know, we can keep living that story out by keeping telling it, or we can consciously shift and decide that there's a better story. And I, I think the root of it is restoring the relationship between the masculine and feminine in our relationships with our family, with ourselves, uh, and the broader community around how the thriving future for humanity is created. Mm. Thank you for that. I love it. How does, the tech, how does technologies play a role in all of that as a way to, to me, technology is nothing, technology is neutral. It could be, it, it's an accelerant, it's a multiplier to whatever is you want to accelerate. So how do you use technology tactically to, to be more collaborative, to bring more feminine values, to do everything that you aspire to do, to bring that upward um, spiral mm -hmm. communities together? Yeah, well, I've been involved, this is where good money comes in. I've been involved with 
cryptocurrency since the early days of Bitcoin um, around August of 2013. I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper and all the light bulbs went off for me about how this was going to be the next industry that was shifted to the digitized version of itself. We've seen that with the print industry and the, and the recording industry and the music industry and quite a few other industries. This time around, it's, it's banks and governments that are, on the, are the incumbents and they're going to put up a hell of a fight. Uh, but geeks will find a way and I saw that that is just inevitable and it was some train that I wanted to or a wave that I wanted to be on the front of so I threw my career behind Bitcoin and that turned out to be a good choice um, I saw one set of values or, or I'm sorry one shift there um, that, that, that other people uh, don't talk about enough but if you really read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper he talks an awful lot about trust and how the trust that we have viewed to date within the financial ecosystem has been trust through reputation and how that has catastrophically failed us a number of different times. Um, most notably recently was the 2008 subprime lending crisis where we trusted that the big banks were going to take care of us. Um, and Bitcoin is putting forth a new model based on technology where trust is not handled by reputation, but it's handled through verification or math instead. And it's a trustless environment, which is, which is going to have far-reaching implications throughout the, the, the rest of humanity's life with technology. Um, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a really big, important point. And so that was the first wave of crypto, was this idea that you could build out a public distributed ledger run by a bunch of computers on the internet where you could only trust 51% of them. Um, I'd say Bitcoin and Ethereum put a big check mark, check mark next to that, that, that we've accomplished that. The second wave of crypto was about ICOs and ultimately, in a word, liquidity this idea that um, instead of a startup having to raise a lot of rounds of funding and do everything right, we could have liquidity uh, give startups the money up front to do what they need to. The third wave of crypto is where this gets interesting and I'm calling it programmable money. And it's not just about the digitization of cash, it's actually about this idea that people are gonna wake up to the fact that if you can make up money you can make up a new currency that's not based on a government wow that's a tremendous opportunity to make up the values behind the currency as well and you can start to shift people towards the thriving future for humanity that we want to create by incentivizing the right set of behaviors through the way that the currency is constructed and um, good money's definitely heading in that direction and that's what, that third wave of crypto I believe we're right in front of. Um, and so uh, I pay a lot of attention, shorter answer to your question, I pay a lot of attention, attention to incentives and if you really want to dig into how to change the way things work at a big level, look at where uh, people have established their 
top level goals what is the true north and the way that they operate and think and um, you know great example of this is Bhutan with its gross national happiness instead of gross national product this is top order measurement I think we need to make a couple of big incentive shifts around the way that people define thriving and once we do that we'll see a better future mm. I think that's the role of technology there's also some crazier uh, ideas that I have about how smart contracts can actually be the way to codify Isaac Asimov's three levels of robotics to make sure that the all the decisions that machines make are ultimately put through the system of smart contracts and that's how we make sure that they don't take us over because we define the rules ahead of time for how they make decisions. Mm. You mentioned actually another thing about community, I'm curious. Community is super important. I'm a huge believer that we're a product of our environment. We're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. A number of quotes I'm sure you probably know personally as well. How do you cultivate the kind of environment that, that you live in? How do you cultivate the counsel of people that advise you on your mm. own behavior? And then more specifically, how do you um, select the men in your life? such that you can always be the best men mm. that you can be. First thing that comes to mind, and, and, and I'm, I, I'm pretty strict about this. Some, some would say too strict, but I really hold that integrity line strong. Um, I mean, effectively, if, if I ever, if I, if I see someone acting out of integrity, I, I, they might get one chance, <laughs> um, but I'm pretty aggressive about ejecting any behaviors that are along those lines because I just, I, I found that I don't want to waste any of my energy, effort, and attention on people that haven't um, learned the importance of that one. Um, um, sometimes if I see en enough great things about a person and then there's just that weak spot, I'll, I'll make it a point to pull them aside and um, let them know how their leaking integrity is affecting their reputation and their, mm. their life and give them a chance to react. You shine a mirror on them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but that one comes up for me is I'm, I'm pretty immovable on. Uh, the other, I, I, I love having people in my life that will provide a counter perspective in, in a certain area. So, or, or, no, I, I'm joking. There's one person in my life that he scores fairly low on the empathy scale, uh, and that's great because he's also got a fantastic business mind. So if I have a new idea that I want to talk about or something crazy, and I just want that person that can rip the idea apart and tell me exactly what's wrong with it, you know, he's the person that I go to. Um, and so I think that it's actually good to have people in your life that uh, will. I, I favor honesty uh, over agreement and otherwise you just wind up building an echo chamber around yourself and so I intentionally also I have a lot of different I have a lot of people in my life that hold a particularly strong pillar in a in a in a certain area mm -hmm. and then when I need advice in that area I know who to go to uh, and and so yeah, there's a lot of cultivation around breadth of experience that I do. Actually, I say that now as if I've done it by, on purpose, but it wasn't until your question it made me reflect and realize that that's what I have been doing. Mm. I've definitely heard the 
uh, I, I definitely heard and, and, and live by the, you are the average of the five people that you hang around most too. So that one rings true for me. Um, um, and I have actively encouraged certain relationships and discouraged others as a result. Mm. I, I'm, <clears throat> so one thing that I found personally, um, I really get to test some of these relationships, the strength of these relationships, either when I'm in a bind, then I started going through the list, right? Who's, who can I count on? Mm. Or when life is really, really good and I want to share something, a steak dinner as mm. an example, like, oh, who can I share mm. this with? Who would I want to share this with? So um, this is an interesting exercise to go through. Um, preemptively, hopefully not when you're in the bind, then you got to think about it. Um, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Is there any last thing that you wanted to say? If there's one thing that people can walk away from this interview, some tactical things, some disciplined things as a way to help them be the best man that they can be in modern times, what would your advice be? A commitment to self-growth because no matter where you are or it's not where you are it's where you're going and so it's easy to wallow in um, a particular circumstance but if you're continually committed to improving your situation you'll always be in a better spot mm. that's a great place to leave it mm. thanks Nick for mm -hmm. being us Thanks, guys. See you next time. Oh, actually, you know what? One last thing. One mm -hmm. thing I always kind of forgot to do. I want to acknowledge you for how you show up in this, oh. uh, this interview, for sharing so generously about your life events, you know, the misfortunes and the fortunes, as well as how you parent, how you kind of look at the difficulties of parenthood. Four kids. You know, that's, uh, that's more kids than most people. Uh, also share about how you look at technology and how it can shape our society. The, uh, the instrument of money is so important and I really love the way that you think about how we can use money as a vehicle for change. So thank you for, so much for sharing so generously in this conversation. And this is true of me and thank you for the work that you do. You're welcome. All right, my friend. <laughs>